and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Washkirk, executive editor of PR Week. How are you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Excited about a Super Bowl on Sunday? Should be a good matchup. Yeah, one of those rare occasions when live TV really kills it, doesn't it? I'm really? going to talk about that in really uh, after we've interviewed our guests. We'll talk about the State of the Union address, responses to that horrible earthquake in Turkey and uh, surrounding areas that says cause devastation. We'll catch up with Omnicom Group's financials. It's the first of the big holding companies to report. their full year 22 and Q4. Marina Ma is stepping back from her eponymous agency after 40 years. We'll talk about Marina. It's Super Bowl week, as I said. So we're, what were the best campaigns and activations? We couldn't have a show without talking about AI, because as you know, we're all being replaced by robots. So the AI wars are intensifying. And we'll talk about clean creatives. They tried to hijack AdNet Zero's launch in the US by um, getting hold of their Twitter handle. So we'll talk about that. But we're, first of all, delighted to introduce our special guest this week. It's Alan Murray, who's the CEO of Fortune Media and uh, doing a grand job over there. But also he's uh, written a very interesting book called Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. Alan, welcome to the show. And really looking forward to chatting to you about this because it's something we come back to again and again on PR Week. Uh, Steve, thanks so much. And Frank, uh, great to be with you. One of the quotes I noticed from the book was from you, you're a committed capitalist, but it can be improved. And we're talking about capitalism 2.0. And I guess that's what a lot of the book talks about. But I was interested in the genesis of it, actually, because it sounded like an yeah. incredible conference in 2016 in in the Vatican uh, in Rome, where you gathered 100 business leaders. Tell us a bit about that and how that kind of started the ideas. I'm sure it didn't completely start them, but how it kick-started what, what's led to this book, but uh, a lot of a lot of the things you talk about anyway. Yeah, that Vatican conference, the Fortune Global Forum in Rome at the Vatican was pretty significant in the evolution of this, at least in my mind. Look, I, uh, in my job, both here at Fortune and my previous job at the Wall Street Journal, I've had extraordinary access to the people who run large companies. I spend a lot of time talking to them either for conferences or for, you know, my newsletter or for other reasons. And, and what happened over the course of the last decade is, you know, I've been doing this for four decades and I realized, wow, these these folks are talking very differently about their jobs than they used to, particularly about their impact on society and their commitment to society. Things like the environment, the climate, uh, training, inequality, training uh, programs, all things that when I started my career, we thought of as government responsibilities, not corporate responsibilities. And all of a sudden you had all these CEOs talking about how to improve their impact on society. And 2016, in a way, was kind of a peak for that, in part because there was so much anxiety about what was going on in government. Remember, February of 2016 was the Brexit vote. And business leaders were saying, well, wait a minute, we told everybody this was a stupid thing to do. Why did they do it? 
And then in the U.S., you had this wild election where on the one hand, on the Republican side, you had Donald Trump, who was running against all the things that had made these companies successful globally, you know, free trade, et cetera. And on the other side, you had a self-described socialist almost win the nomination away from Hillary Clinton. And so I think a lot of business leaders were saying, I, I literally had a Fortune 50 CEO say to me that year, hey, if we don't figure out how to do this better quickly, we are going to lose our operating licenses. So that was kind of the sense that people had at that, at that time. And so what we did was pull 100 CEOs, large corporations, companies you've heard of, Siemens, IBM, WPP in the communications business. Martin Sorrell was there. Uh, we 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 brought, he said no government officials. We're just going to bring business leaders to Rome. We spent a day talking about what can the private sector do to make progress on these big social problems that the Pope was focused on: access to health care, clean water, environment, climate. And then Saturday morning, we took our recommendations. They all got to spend like an hour and a half in the Sistine Chapel before the public was let in, which was an amazing experience, and had a meeting with the Pope and said, hey, here's what these people, these people run big, powerful companies. They want to improve their impact on society. Here's what they can do to address these problems. So for us at Fortune, that was really the beginning of a, a almost a new purpose for the organization. We out of that, we created something called the CEO Initiative, and we've been building it ever since. Yeah, Genesis is a good word for it, isn't it? And you were certainly in um, elevated company there and um, held to standards. Before that, I guess capitalism 1.0, if you like, had always been very sort of Friedman-esque, free market, as you said. Right. Companies exist for the benefit of their shareholders. I remember the Reagan-Thatcher years. Thatcher famously said, there was no, there's no such thing as society. But a couple of quotes that struck me from your book, one's from Satya Nadella from Microsoft, profit needn't be separated from purpose. It's a false choice. So which principles will shape capital, capitalism 2.0? And then Jamie Dimon, ca companies can only prosper if they invest in their employees, serve their customers, support their communities, and um, respect their responsibility to help lift up all of society rather than ignore or drive by those who've been left behind really noble um, sentiments. but and, and there is a chapter toward the end of your book where you address the skeptics, because this is not by any means universally agreed with, is it? There are a lot of skeptics out there. It's regarded as, as a very vocal, especially at the moment, group who subscribe to the philosophy that it's woke capitalism, business shouldn't get involved in this. What do you say to those people? Because that's a very strong uh, driver, isn't it, of opinion, especially in the United States? There's no question that many of my colleagues in the press have have been critical of this. You know, from the left, they say, oh, it's just a bunch of PR to get to, to the <laughs> subject of your podcast. Either it's just a bunch of PR, it's just a bunch of people trying to, you know, uh, it's what do you call it? Value signaling, uh, virtue signaling. Virtue signaling, yeah. And, yeah. And then on the other side, from the com conservative side, it's like this is a distraction. They're just playing footsie with Elizabeth Warren. It's woke capitalism. They just need to focus on making a profit. The interesting thing is none of those criticisms come from the people who actually run big companies. I mean, I, I had this I, I ran into uh, Ed Bastian, who was the CEO of Delta shortly after the book came out. And he said, what kind of reaction is the 
book getting. And I said, well, you know, it surprises me how much pushback there is from journalists and from politicians. And he said, he said, without missing a beat, he said, yeah, well, none of them run large corporations. So the people who are actually in the game and who are dealing with the pressures from their employees every day and dealing with the pressures from society and social media is a big part of this. The people who are actually in the game get this and understand it and believe it. Uh, it tends to be the politicians and the journalists and the people on the outside who uh, who are uh, the critics. What do you think has been achieved? If you think about the development of, since that conference, there was the the business roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation, which, you know, again, a lot of people were skeptical about that, but it was a fundamental yeah. change from something that was in 2019. Correct. But then we see companies like this week, BP, scaling back its plans to curb oil output and others, you know, recording record profits, energy companies and not uh, people say, well, why aren't they addressing climate here? They're making more money than ever, you know. To me, client, there are a couple of things. One is no one ever said this was about not making profits. No. This was about recognizing your responsibility, your fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. The truth is, and any business leader would agree with this, there are really a lot of different ways you can get there. Uh, there are a lot of different things you can do and still stay with a straight face. You're, you're, you're responding to your shareholders within that operating space, how do you move towards having a better impact on society? That's that's what this whole conversation is about. I think climate is where you have the clearest demonstration that something big is going on. Um, you know, since 2019, the increase in Fortune 500 companies that have made net zero commitments by 2050 or sooner, it, it's about a 300% increase. So, it, it, it really has exploded since then. And then, you know, people will say, well, wait, 2050 is a long way off. This CEO is going to be dead by then. Why, do, why does a commitment in 2050 mean anything? But then you see big companies doing real stuff. And I'll give you just two huge examples. One is Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, who in January of, of last year, no, January of 21, I guess it was, yeah. said, we are only going to make electric vehicles by 2035. Uh, now, that's a goal that they have to start working on instantly. They did start working on instantly because you've got to retool all your factories. Those are long-term investments. It has transformed that company. Uh, and it wasn't obvious. It was not, you certainly couldn't justify it by the number of electric vehicles that were being sold in 2021 because there weren't that many. Um, and it wasn't required by regulation. In fact, Mary Barra was a year and a half ahead of California. And previously in the automobile business, California was always the lead. California would put a regulation in place with cafe standards and the auto industry would follow suit. So that's a great example of a CEO making a commitment because she felt it was the right thing to do and felt it would be right for the business in the long run. I mean, you'd seen Tesla, you know, soar in the stock markets. Uh, and she is not what anyone would consider a woke CEO. Better example is, is, uh, is Walmart. You know, you have a CEO, uh, I mean, nobody thinks of Walmart as a woke company 
or of uh, Doug McMillan as a woke CEO. Especially in New York. Especially in New York. Yeah. Exactly. They don't want him any, anywhere near here. It's a red state. It's a red state company. But but McMillan uh, said, I think it was about a year ago, he said, I want Walmart to be the ultimate regenerative company. And 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 what that means is to give back to people and planet, not take away. Uh, and one of the things he did, which is pretty extraordinary, is he went out to his suppliers and said, we want to enlist all of you in the effort to reduce emissions. And 4,000 suppliers participate. You know, if you're a Walmart supplier and Walmart asks you something like that, you pay attention. You right? jump, yeah. Yeah, 4,000 suppliers are participating in this project Gigaton, which is designed to remove a gigaton of carbon emissions from the environment. So you, I'll give you one, one third example that just is indicative of the momentum that is picking up in this area. Uh, Soren Sku, who is the CEO of Moeller Maersk, the big shipping company. Shipping company, yeah. Yeah, they made a massive investment in the North Sea in wind, in wind power to, to power a hydrogen fuel plant to power their ships. Now, I can tell you there is no way that investment can be justified on current economics. It cannot. So I said to him, and it was a very expensive investment. So I said, I said, Soren, why are you doing this? And he said, well, I'm doing it because literally twice a week I get a phone call from my one of my uh, my customers who says, hey, I just made this net zero commitment. Uh, and the only way I can get there is if you get all the carbon emissions out of your shipping, because all my stuff runs on your ships. So you got to do this so I can make my target. So you're starting to see that sort of thing take hold. And it's really I think it's really transformative. It's not perfect. It doesn't solve the problem. The BP example is really interesting. Uh, I spoke to the CEO of BP this morning. In fact, he was in New York. Um, uh, look, what BP said was two things. One is, given what happened in Ukraine, uh, they have to they have to they yes, they want to be part of the energy transition, but they also have to make sure that the world has a reliable and affordable source of energy. And what happened in Russia and the Ukraine created the risk of sharply spiking oil prices, which would cause all kinds of social damage. And so they upped their investment in oil. But at the same time, they upped their investment in alternatives. So they're the only oil company of all the oil companies that's actually investing as much in alternatives as they are investing in oil and gas. Um, uh, so it, it's not a perfect solution. You know, companies can't solve all our problems. They still have to make profits for their shareholders. The the push for profits is sometimes going to lead them into uh, places that are not good for society. But it is a completely different attitude towards running a business than existed 10 years ago. Alan, I'm curious what you think about the current political environment and, and statewide some of the pushback against ESG, because I, I think it's um, it's hard to deny that, you know, in Florida, Ron DeSantis has made a big issue of pushing yeah. back against companies. And it's it's been a very effective national platform for him. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I mean, look, I've I've been at this for a long time. I started my journalism career four decades ago. And when I started business pretty much defined the right wing of the spectrum, right? 
uh, you know, the American Enterprise Institute was the big source of thought leadership for the Republican Party. Um, today, many, and this is what I was saying about 2016, many of the business leaders I talked to look at what's going on in the political world and say, I don't subscribe to either one of these. I don't like the sort of cloaked uh, uh, discrimination that's going on in the Republican Party. Uh, and I don't like the anti-capitalist mood of the Democratic Party. Um, so I don't really I, I don't really identify with either one of these parties. And most of them, what most of them say to me, and this is contrary to some of the commentaries, that they just don't want to have anything to do with politics at all. They want to do the right thing, but not get involved in politics. I'll give you one specific example. Um, I, I had this conversation with James Quincy, who is the CEO of Coca-Cola, and of course is in Georgia, which is a hotbed for the kind of sentiment you're talking about. And, and what he said is, is, and I've heard this from many other CEOs, but I'll just use this one example. What he said is, look, if ESG becomes a dirty term in Republican politics, I'll stop using the term ESG. You know, and, and in fact, it has become a dirty term. And so I probably will stop using the term ESG, but it's not going to change my business plan. I still, you know, and want to want Coca-Cola to be to be a water positive company. I still want to solve the uh, recycling problem for single use plastics. I still want to reduce the sugar in my uh, products because of the health problems that cause. And, and I'm, I think those are that's what my employees want me to do. That's what my customers want me to do. That's what society wants me to do. And I'm going to keep doing it. That's interesting you say that because that's really all about communication, isn't it? And that's obviously what we talk about here at PR Week. Do you think CEOs now understand that? I think they certainly respect what their PR function and their leaders in that in that uh, in the PR area bring to the the table. But they also understand that they've got to be out there doing a much more effective job of communicating and maybe communicating that purposeful business can be profitable business as well, right? And it's not one or the other. Actually, they go together because I was interested. Um, well, we'll come to CEOs making statements on social issues. But what do you think about that yeah. thing about CEOs and communications generally? Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting point. Look, when I when I first started hearing more and more CEOs talking this way, I sort of said, why are they doing this? And my first my I'm I'm a cynic like all of us in this business, right? Yeah, yeah. And so my my first thought was, well, they must have some, there must be some like coalition of PR people who are writing their talking points. But but as I got deeper into it, I realized they weren't talking from talking point the points. This was their sincerely held belief on the best way to run a company in the modern world. And uh, and you know, as it start, you would still run in occasionally to a company, and I heard stories of companies where the CEO would go to the PR department and say, hey, I have a perception problem, go fix it. <laughs> but but I think what most of them came to realize is this isn't it's it maybe it's about PR, but only PR in the best sense. Um, this is not about writing a press release that because of the cynicism and the trust deficit in society, insincerity, lack of authenticity can be sniffed out in a nanosecond. Social media plays a role in that as well. So it's not just about what I say, it's a, it's about what I do. And in fact, it's probably even more about what I do. And, and, and one more thing on that. One question I asked for a decade, every time I heard somebody start talking like this, I would say, why are you doing this? The first response always 
was employees because my employees want me to, because, you know, my employees get excited about it, because it helps me attract the best employees. It was always first and foremost about the employees. And and the employees know you can't pull the wool over the eyes of the employees. If you say you're doing good stuff and you're really doing bad stuff, they're in there doing it. So they see it. Yeah. And employee engagement has now become the internal comms has become the first line of external, hasn't it? So, and probably exacerbated by COVID. I was interested in the survey you did at Fortune in 2021, actually, where you asked for 500, well, I think it was a 100 CEOs, whether they should speak out on important social and political issues. That's taking communication to an extra layer, I guess. But to your point, that's often what employees want leaders to do. And sometimes it's you're getting into some very um, tricky pools there. But it was interesting, 50% of CEOs said they should speak out on important social and political issues and continue to do so. Whereas 50% said thought that CEOs have got too involved in commentating on social and political issues and, and should pull back. What's your take on that part of it, which is kind of taking that communication to an, a different level? And, and especially in these days of social media, you know, it really can, it can go the wrong way, right? That's right. And, and in fact, the subsequent, we asked the same question a year later, and the number of CEOs who thought they were speaking out too much and needed to pull back went from 50 to 75%. Right. So, so I think you have to make a distinction between what companies do and what companies say. There was, to me, the kind of the most surprising, fast-moving part of the story was the speaking out that as a journalist who tried to get CEOs to comment on controversial issues for most of my career, the go-to, I know that their go-to response until about eight years ago or seven years ago was to hide under the desk. Are you, you know, transgender access to public bathrooms? Are you kidding me? You think I'm going to talk about that? In fact, the most dramatic example of this was in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, what was the name of the guy who was killed in, by police in Ferguson? It was Michael Brown, I think, in Ferguson. Yeah, but that was like, that was like 2014. I went back and checked my memory on this. You cannot find a single CEO who issued a statement on that. But then when it happened in 2022, every CEO felt the need to put out a statement saying how appalled they were by, by uh, uh, what happened to George Floyd. So, uh, so that, that happened very quickly. And I think it got a little bit out of hand because CEOs started saying, well, wait a minute, I can't take on all these issues. And, and, uh, what's happened is at most big companies, an entirely new process, a new muscle has been put into place where they have a group of people whose job it is to vet issues and figure out what are the two, three, four things that we really have to speak out on because they are fundamental to our values and to our business. Um, and what are the ones we don't have to speak out on? And that, that's become a kind of a new practice within large companies. How do, you, how do you vet the thousand issues that come your way every year and decide which are the three or four that you're really going to take a stand on and which are the others that you're going to stay away from? I know that CEOs and comms departments now are saying when they have a, almost have a, a, a five-point plan, when should we make, yeah. make a comment and when shouldn't we? And I know that's Based, that's reducing it to almost like percentages, which is a hor- horrible way to think about it. But uh, there has to be some way of coming to, uh, to coming to answers on what you, sh- what you should do. Yeah, let me give you one other example that I thought was really interesting. When the Dobbs, when the Supreme Court made its Dobbs decision, basically reversing Roe v. Wade, 
I talked to probably a couple of dozen big company CEOs, including some based in Texas and in the Southeast states. And I said, what are you doing about this? And with the exception of a couple of California tech companies, the answer I heard was almost identical in every company, which is first, what I'm doing is checking our benefit programs to make sure, and they didn't use these words, but in effect, to make sure we were preserving choice for our employees. So if you work for us and you're in a state where you're at risk of not being able to get a procedure you need, we need to make sure we have policies in place to give you the time and the travel budget to get where you need to go to get the procedure you need. Uh, that was step one. And including companies based in Texas said, we're going to preserve this for our employees. But then the second thing was, but please, God, don't make me talk about this. Don't do it in a way where it's going to leak into the press because I don't this is a controversial subject. We have, you know, evangelicals in our company who feel abortion is murder. And and so so it was a, a it was a great example of kind of distinguishing between what we do and what we say. Yeah. None of this stuff is easy, is it? Alan, what do you make of the disconnect with Gen Z? Because, you know, you see all these surveys out there saying Gen Z is, is soured on capitalism, that they're the, the more socialist generation. Uh, well, what does uh, what does business have to do to to break through there? And is it possible? Well, I think this was part of the you know, this was generations prior to Z. You could see this happening. I mean, in the in the let's see, in the uh, last presidential election or maybe even before that, you had polls showing that a majority of people under the age of whatever, 35 uh, didn't believe in capitalism. I think that was what part of what got businesses really worried. And this comment that I uh, uh, from a Fortune 50 CEO that I quoted that, you know, if we don't do if we don't get better at this, we're going to lose our operating licenses. That's what really drove it. Um, what's interesting is I think actually they regained some ground during the pandemic. I mean, this is the Richard Edelman trust survey. And 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 what it shows is not that businesses are so greatly trusted, but at least they're trusted more than government. And yeah, certainly more than the press. So so and I think that was because of um, actions that companies took to both protect and inform their employees during the pandemic, uh, particularly my employer. People felt good about what my employer had done to take care of me during that time. And, and you know, it doesn't, I mean, obviously lots of people were laid off. Uh, there were uh, uh, lots of people got sick at the workplace, but uh, my sense is there was more focus on employees and better behavior generally during that period than, than previous. Yeah, definitely agree. And that's what we're seeing over here. While we have you here, and um, we all know media is a tough business. It's one of the sectors with technology that's uh, seen a lot of stress over the past year. And you're the CEO of Fortune Media. How's it going over there? You've got uh, obviously different ownership um, in the past few years. Can, what can you tell us about how your media operation is going? We're doing really well. I mean, we've grown... Since our independence, which was about three and a half years ago, uh, we had a little bump at the beginning because our business is heavily dependent on live conferences and COVID shut that business down. But we pivoted to virtual events. We've had probably 35 percent growth in revenue since our independence. 
Uh, we've been profitable for the last two years. And this is in spite of the fact that the print product, which at one point was the majority of our revenues, is now 16 or 17 percent of our rev revenue. So we've been able to offset the decline of the print product by growing our digital business and by working with our, our top partners to, you know, in conferences, we've created some new businesses. Um, so at the moment, we're feeling pretty good. How different is it working for uh, the biggest uh, business person in Thailand, Chachaval Jaravanan, versus being part of a what you might call a legacy media com company or a mainstream media company? What, what difference has that made? You know, the biggest difference is that by being independent, you know, when we were part of Time Inc. and I for a while, I was the chief content officer. So I had responsibility for all 24 titles, but it was 24 titles and it was very siloed. And so, you know, the Fortune sales department never met with the Fortune editorial department and the Fortune brand studios were over across the river, part of another vertical. So it was very siloed and, and broken up. And the biggest thing that independence has done for us is create a culture of cooperation inside the company and then allowed us to be way more effective and creative in working with our, our business partners on the outside of the company. So we have maybe a dozen large partners uh, and it ranges from Salesforce to CVS to Deloitte, Accenture who have been critical to our economic success. And it's because we work with them and say, look, what do you need? And here are our platforms. And how can we put something together that uh, works for you? Well, make sure you check out Alan's book, Tomorrow's Capitalist, My Search for the Soul of Business. I'm sure everybody gets Alan's CEO daily email. But if you don't, got to get that in the morning alongside the PR Week breakfast briefing, the essential start of a day. <laughs> Give ourselves a plug. And uh, thanks for chatting, Alan. Great to uh, talk to you about that. And we'll get your input into some of the big stories of the day. Frank, it's the State of the Union last night as we're recording this. It's always great theatre. What was uh, what were the big uh, outcomes from your point of view? Well, one of the takeaways that I got from watching the reaction to the State of the Union was that uh, a lot of the Democrats seemed happy with, uh, with Biden's speech. And I I think very happy with his um, boisterous response to a, a hostile crowd in the moment. And I think that was uh, visually very important for, for somebody that's uh, 80 years old and, um, you know, really, really showed some vigor there. Um, I, th I think a lot of the, the heckling gets a lot of the headlines and I'm not sure it should, but um, I, it was also a very long speech. If you looked at the stats, I think it went over 70 minutes and these have been trending shorter for the past couple of years. Um, but I, I, I think it's probably one of the more confrontational speeches, both in terms of the back and forth and the trap Biden sort of laid for the opposition at one point. Than most of them in recent memory. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. Yeah, what did you think of that? Did that work? That seemed to work pretty well. It, it did seem to work pretty well. And, and look, it's no secret these things are rehearsed and they are. Um, yeah, just like a debate. And, um, you know, the uh, 
the Republicans stepped into uh, stepped right into it at the one point. Yeah, Alan, you were Washington bureau chief at CNBC and the Wall Street Journal, and I'm sure you've seen many, many of these State of the Union speeches. As a communications performance, because Biden gets a lot of criticism for that, especially from his detractors, how do you how do you think he did in terms of getting his messages over? And what did you make of the 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 State of the Union well, last night? Uh, in general, I think he did pretty well. I mean, the problem, you know, the danger he faces is that he stumbles or looks old or weak. I thought he was pretty alive and alert. Um, um, but but here's here's I agree with you. He's been a he's been a pretty lousy communicator. And the thing that I've focused on is uh, there's been an enormous change in economic policy in the in the last two years. If you put together the Infrastructure Act the CHIPS Act, which provided hundreds of millions of dollars to build semiconductor factories in the United States, and then the Inflation Reduction Act, which, of course, had nothing to do with inflation, but created massive subsidies for things like electric cars, but also then required that those electric cars have batteries that were built in the United States. There is like a baked in those three things. There is the biggest industrial policy that we've we've seen in this country, certainly since the Eisenhower highway system, certainly anything in the last 50 years. And it's not well understood or known because Biden's done such a lousy job communicating that change. I thought he did better at that last night, you know, focusing on the middle class, focusing on bringing manufacturing back to the U.S., saying that he was not going to allow any federal infrastructure to be built without uh, without U.S. manufacturing. So in that sense, I also thought he did, um, he helped correct a huge communication yeah, gap. A lot of the messaging similar to President Trump, actually, but some might say it's yeah. yep. just delivered in a but different way. To be honest, I mean, Trump was way better at communicating it. He didn't do half as much. I mean, no. it's, it's $2 trillion of industrial policy in those three bills, and it is hardcore industrial policy. In terms and, and of you, I'm, I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. You may like it or you may hate it, but it's a big thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In terms of uh, us reestablishing trust in politicians, do you think the uh, watching that is going to make people uh, re-engage with uh, some no. of the antics? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's no. I just getting more like the House of Commons in the UK, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, all I have to do it. is look at my inbox to, you know, yeah. if you, if you, if you, if you write Biden, You've instantly turned off about 35 percent of the people and, you know, maybe turned on the other 35 percent. 35 percent is too high. The truth is the vast majority of Americans are in the middle yeah. and just and just really uh, disgusted with the whole thing. Yeah. And I put myself in that group. Yeah, we need more to move to the middle, don't we, in so many ways as a society. Um, Frank, uh, a horrible earthquake in Turkey and the surrounding countries, Syria, Lebanon and other places. How has um, business been responding to that and um, how's that been communicated? Well, we're going to have more for uh, our readers on that tomorrow uh, with a look uh, from officials at the Red Crescent, which has been on the ground uh, in Turkey and in Syria. Uh, as well as with the corresponding groups in the U.S. And, and one thing we're focusing on is how do they keep the attention 
on uh, this terrible earthquake, and it feels almost silly to say that, but you have to remember people's uh, attention spans are so, uh, they move from thing to thing so quickly. But the images are just just devastating, and, and just the the sheer scope of it at you know more than eleven thousand people dead is is just it's it's incredibly terrible uh, event to see, and and like I said, the images are are just terrible. Yeah, the, so the organizations are going to try to keep this in front of people in the U.S., both in terms of fundraising and accountability uh, in the weeks and months that follow. Yeah, in terms of pictures, painting a thousand words, that picture of a father holding the hand of his dead teenage daughter was just said everything didn't it mm. now, alan in a, in a more isolationist world is there, there's still the appetite to help people out when they're in trouble around the world but images like that do really help don't they tell the story i hope so i hope so i mean uh, you know you can't underestimate the effect that social media has had on all of us things that that used to feel very very far away in your Instagram feed or your Facebook feed can feel very, very close to home. And sometimes that's a bad thing. But in a case like this, that may be a good thing. We empathize much more with with a horrible, horrible tragedy like this. And hopefully it will lead to more assistance. Yeah, for sure. Frank, let's get into some uh, financials. They're starting to report their holding company, their marketing services, holding company financials for 2022 and Q4. Omnicom's out with theirs. Pretty positive, weren't they? Yeah, um, both Omnicom and Publicis had positive Q4 and full year results. Um, almost. Are, are you surprised at how good they were? I was. I was slightly surprised at the numbers. A little bit, but um, they were also, you know, we should say in 21, they were, they still grew, but they yeah. didn't grow as much as some of their competitors. So you've always got to look, you can't just look at this one year in isolation, but no, I think they were, they were, they were good results. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Publicis up 9.4% in Q4, and they paid out a record high of uh, bonuses of uh, more than 500 million euros. So uh, something their staff, I'm sure, is really happy about. Um, Omnicom. Up 12.7% in Q4 in terms of the PR agencies. Overall, the holding company was up 7.2%. So you can say the PR outperformed the rest of the functions at Omnicom. And for the full year, the PR firms were up to $1.55 billion, an increase of almost 14%. So Omnicom's agencies are Fleischmann, Hillard, Ketchum, Marina Mar Communications, and Porter Novelli, among some others. And Tokyo Marina Mar Communications, Marina is stepping back a little bit from her eponymous agency. She founded 40 years ago. They've got a new CEO, and we did a Diana Bradley did a nice piece on the story, but also some reflections from Marina on the last four decades as uh, running her own business. Yeah, and and thanks to Marina for being so open with us about about her career and and everything that she learned that she went through. There were not a lot of female entrepreneurs at the time that she was uh, founding that agency. So here's what's going on this week: um, Marina Morris stepping down after 40 years of leading the uh, the firm with her name. She's going to be succeeded by Olga Fleming, who's going to be chief executive and also going to be chief executive of the specialist agency R. Mosaic, uh, which is a healthcare focused shop. Uh, but in a sidebar we did on it, uh, Marina Mar talked about founding the agency back in 1983 and some of the work she did that was um, it was pretty controversial at the time, you know, whether that was uh, talking about taboo topics in, in women's healthcare, um, working on the Coverboy campaign for Covergirl. 
working for Wonderbra, things like that. So a, a really interesting look back at the work that she and her firm did over the past four decades. She also talked about what it was like being a female leader 40 right. years ago and what she called being a girl boss. That was her phrase. Tell us a bit about that. It would have been a rarity. And she talks about being the only woman in the room uh, and sometimes being the only woman there at a big conference, which is, um, you know, good riddance to, to those days, of course. But, um, you know, it's it's almost even hard to imagine at this point 40 years ago, isn't it? It is. And um, it's good to see that, that, that things are changing. And uh, Alan mentioned Mary Barrow and there are other very high profile Female CEOs making a difference. Ros Brewer at Walgreens as well. Um, it's Super Bowl week on Sunday, the big game. And one of those times when live TV becomes really um, important again and people sort of get together and uh, it's opportunities for marketers, isn't it? What, what's uh, what's caught your eye this week? It's, um, it's, it's going to be an interesting thing. I did an informal survey of the team before and everybody is looking forward to seeing how this M&M's campaign resolves itself because I think that is the the one that has gotten the most attention in the lead up. Uh, I know I mentioned last week we probably will not be inundated with crypto ads like we were last year. Um, really interested to see uh, social media wise what companies continue to be active on Twitter, which ones maybe have dropped it. Did a great analysis this past week on on how you know TikTok may be all the rage right now, but it's not a great spot uh, for Super Bowl advertisers during the big game because it just requires too much attention. We also had a story about a diversity focused initiative that PepsiCo is doing, and I, I think a really smart one, reaching out to Hispanic owned businesses locally. Uh, in Phoenix and in the greater Phoenix area in the weeks before the Super Bowl. Uh, so keeping an eye on all of those things. But I think most people might be looking forward to the M&M's ad uh, or whatever they do on social media. It might not just be the ad where the, the yeah, big reveal happens. Yeah, it's beyond that these days, isn't it? Who's going to win, Frank? That's the big question. I have a feeling Philadelphia will win, though I, I'm hoping I regret saying that. <laughs> what about you, Alan? Who's going to win? Uh, I'll go with Philadelphia. Um, uh, and, 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 but I feel a little better about that. But I avoid watching the ads before the game. To me, that feels like watching the game before the game. So I'm going to, I will stay there through all the commercial breaks to see what delightful things teams have prepared for us. Will you be tweeting about what your favorite ad? I might. I might do a little yeah. tweeting. Feels like a chance for Elon if he wanted to, you know changed tack a bit maybe he seems to have engaged the ad buyers a bit more so you know it's it is where twitter comes into its own so anyway we shall see it'll be a lot of fun um let's talk about ai frank it seems like as the this is really this story's blown up really quickly and it's not just microsoft that's involved now everyone wants to get involved don't they and uh, it seems to have big implications for communications and journalism but any every industry let me unpack this in a few different ways. And, and number one that we talked about Omnicom earlier, uh, John Wren, the CEO of Omnicom Group, said on their earnings call this week that uh, his company is really going to throw itself at AI, that it is going to make their best employees even better and smarter uh, and faster. I think, you know, everybody's uh, looking at that, with the, you know, at Omnicom with a little bit of concern of, you know, does that mean my job? I'm sure. Uh, and what does it mean? Uh, so that's, that's one thing we're going to have uh, an eye on in the remaining holding company earnings calls. Uh, IPG, by the way, is also this week. Um, 
But in terms of AI itself, there's this this arms race has has broken out with the mass popularity of ChatGPT. Microsoft made that gigantic uh, investment in ChatGPT, and this week did a press conference showing off how it is going to integrate those AI features into its products like Bing uh, and into its web browser. Um, but there was a mishap with uh, Google's AI event this week, and the and shares of Google's parent company Alphabet were down. Uh, more than 7% today because investors, you know, the more they poked around um, this AI product, they they got the feeling that uh, it was not up to snuff and that Google did not have as much of a plan laid out for it as Microsoft did. And part of that was that an ad uh, generated by Bard, uh, which is their AI product, uh, showed some miscorrect, uh, some misinformation. Uh, and so investors seem to, to not think that Google is as... Uh, Far ahead of the game as Microsoft is right now. Yeah, Google's getting some challenges it on is. the search front and the AI front, and that's good. Competition is good. Alan, you've got uh, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, on the latest print edition of Fortune. So, what did you what what did you learn from that? I, I think this is yeah, I think this is huge. I wrote in my newsletter in November last year that this was the big story of 2022. And, you know, just and it's it's hard to get your head around how this is going to change the world. But 10 years from now, but take your take the uh, public relations industry as an example. What you have now with chat GPT is something that, you know, let's say you're you're running. A, you want to run a, a, a PR campaign for a new product. And probably the first step you would normally take is go to a couple of two year associates in the firm and say, hey, give us a list of options and then we'll. Bat them, you know, bat them around and vet them and so forth. And those those two two year associates would go off and spend a week to come back with a list of ten options. Now you go to ChatGPT; it can give you those ten options in ten seconds. Uh, uh, they're not perfect. They're not no more perfect than the options you get from the two year associates are perfect. But they give you a a, a great starting point, and they they saved you that time and investment. And it's going to keep getting better and better. Pretty soon, it won't be two years; it'll be four years. And so you're going to have at your fingertips an amazing uh, uh, ability to get a rough draft. It won't be the final draft. You got to, you, you know, human experience, human wisdom, uh, human discretion is still going to be critical to the final product, but it's a pretty damn good first draft. Yeah, and you've you got to remember we're in this sort of, you think, think of search, we're back in the sort of Alta Vista, Lycos, Microsoft days, aren't we? The early days. This is 1.0. There's a lo- long way to go with this. I suppose for us in journalism, we've we've seen our jobs decimated by uh, search and lots of other things. Everyone says, oh, it'll allow journalists to concentrate on the more in-depth work. But what that usually means is it uh, allows companies to get rid of more more journalists and and um, and do more in automated fashion. And look, AI has been used in financial stories for for getting on for 20 years now. So it's nothing new in journalism. What, what would you say to your journalists at Fortune and, and others out there in the industry? I think the best way to survive is to is to embrace, you know, learn it, use it, learn how it can make you better because it will make a lot of people better. There could be some people who lose their jobs as a result, but there will be other people who make fortunes as a result. And the way to be in the latter group and not in the former group is to embrace early. Uh, so th- that would be my advice. Figure out what it can do, what it can't do, and how you can use the unique skills that a human being can bring to the equation to uh, to 
to make it better. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And let's finish, Frank, with uh, AdNet Zero launched. This is the uh, climate change initiative through the advertising industry launched in the US this week. But it struck a bit of a, uh, you know, took a bit of a tumble with its uh, social media, didn't it? Because uh, an activist group had hijacked their Twitter handle. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um so, uh, yeah, it, it launched this week in the U.S. It's backed by the ad industry trade groups, the 4As, the ANA, the IAB. Uh, it has backing from all the major holding companies, um, as well as some media companies like Vox Media um, and some tech companies on Audacity, Sidera, Duration Media. Um, so the USA chapter says they're going to focus first on broad education and training programs. Uh, for their constituents, um, and especially online training courses, especially for the U.S. market. So uh, one thing they forgot to do, though, was to register uh, AdNet Zero official uh, social media handles and the activist group Clean Creatives, which uh, has the goal of uh, sort of prying away all emissions um um, all fossil fuel companies from uh, marketing and creative and PR agencies. Uh, it took over or created, launched those handles this week uh, and is holding them hostage. Um, so I, I will it have an impact? I don't know. Uh, but it is not a great look for uh, an it's organization not, that has uh, really marketers isn't. and communicators on board. It really isn't. Yeah. And Alan, the wider issue here, I guess, there's been a massive rise in activist investors, in activist groups who can you know use social media to their advantage. Whatever you want to call them, undercover journalism outlets, activists, whatever. What's what's your take on that? And how much of a threat is this to brands and business? Well, there's certainly more and more of that going on. I, I got to say, I, I think the notion of sort of blacklisting uh, oil companies is exceptionally stupid. I mean, we, you know, if you shut down every oil company today, you would have people dying in the streets, right? It's That's not an option. We're going to be living with oil for the next 30 years. And the right thing to do is not boycott them or blacklist them. The right thing to do is get involved and pressure them to increase their investment in transitional, you know, in, in alternative uh, energy and try and push them to use the vast amounts of money they make in a more creative way. I mean, that's what's starting to happen. You were talking about BP a minute ago. So BP's investment in alternatives has gone from 3% of its total investment in 2019 to roughly 50% now. That's massive. That's a massive change. And why isn't Exxon and Chevron doing the same thing? That's where that's where activism could be useful. Push them to do better. Don't do uh, something silly like boycott them or or refuse to work for them. So here's um here's my question for clean creatives, and that's that if you, um, you know, and and look, we all want to ultimately live in an emission free world, of course, but um, you know, they they put all the major holding companies on their their F list last year for working with fossil fuel companies. Well, if you if you're not working with any of them, who are who are you working with in terms of being an industry group? I mean, who's left at this point? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a big issue. It's like all of these things. There's no black and white. There's shades of grey, and uh, the activism tends to profit by having a black and white. That's that's where communication can be really effective when it's presented in that way. But it, most things are shades of grey. So yeah, it's uh, it's a big topic. We'll come back to it. Alan, been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. It was fun. 
Great to be with you. Great book. And um, yeah, continued good fortune to you, as it were. Um, Just a couple of customer service announcements. We've got the PR Week US Awards, the Oscars of the PR industry. They're in New York City on the 16th of March. Our Crisis Comms event is in D.C., on the uh, 12th of April. Healthcare Conference and Awards in New York City on the 24th of May. And our Global Awards are in London on the 9th of May. That's going to be a great event. And don't forget our agency business report is open for submission. So if you haven't uh, registered and started filling out your form yet, please do so. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week.